Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why you shouldn't hold a public hearing about how to regulate Uber inside a nightclub. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Welcome back to a new year of the show. Last year went pretty well, and uh, hopefully this year will be even better still. It's still a great privilege that Kieran and I get to work on a program where we can take the time to prepare thoroughly, get things right, and focus on what matters most rather than what will get the most clicks. This year's first guest, Audrey Tang, works on the metaphorical front lines, figuring out how to use technology to make governments work better, while increasing the trust bureaucracies have in the public and the trust the public has in bureaucracies. I explained more about Audrey's deal in her mini-biography at the start of the interview, so for now, I'll just leave it there. Before the interview, though, I just wanted to let you know about two job opportunities uh, with us here at 80,000 Hours. First off, we are hiring some career advisors to join our one-on-one team. Our advisors speak personally with hundreds of talented and altruistically minded people in order to help them find the highest impact career that they can. We found that experience with coaching in particular isn't necessary, and everything from management consulting to teaching to global priorities research has helped someone be a good fit. It's a London-based role with a starting salary around £65,000 and applications close on February 20th. We're also hiring a new head of job board to lead, you guessed it, the job board. You can find the board as it currently exists now at 80,000hours.org slash jobs if you'd like to check it out. The new job board lead is going to be responsible for figuring out how the job board can have more impact than it is now, acting on that plan, and also managing the team that works on the job board. That's also a London-based role, and the starting salary for someone with five years of relevant experience would be around £72,000 a year. That one closes on the 27th of February. If you'd like to learn more about either role or what it's like working at 80,000 hours, head to 80,000hours.org slash latest or use the links in the show notes. And if you know someone who would be perfect for one of those two positions, do let them know uh, in time to apply. All right, without further ado, I bring you Audrey Tang. Today, I'm speaking with Audrey Tang. Audrey is a programmer and currently a minister in the Taiwanese government focused on using digital tools to improve democratic deliberation as well as solve other societal problems. Audrey was a child prodigy of sorts, who started on classical literature at five, advanced math at six, and programming at eight. She dropped out of formal education early in high school in order to pursue self-education and work at various software companies. She first became involved in Taiwanese politics in 2014, when she helped the Sunflower Student Movement occupy the Taiwanese Parliament Building. And that movement successfully prevented a trade deal between Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, which they argued would harm the Taiwanese economy and leave it vulnerable to strong-arming by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, The same government she had been protesting subsequently invited her on as a consultant to, among other things, improve their ability to talk with and learn from the general public. In 2016, the government in Taiwan changed hands from the Kuomintang to the Democratic Progressive Party, and Audrey was invited to become a minister without portfolio focused on digital affairs. That then made her Taiwan's second youngest minister, as well as its first transgender minister. She has since pursued a diverse range of programs to help Taiwan, including using quadratic voting to aid policy deliberations in civil society, using live maps and national ID cards to ensure that everyone in Taiwan had a face mask in February 2020, creating a crowdsourced effort to combat disinformation, and shifting Taiwan's school curriculum towards building competence and away from rote memorization. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Audrey. Hello, good luck at time, everyone. Really happy to be here. I hope to talk about technologies that you're excited by and get a sense of your overall political philosophy. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? 
I'm working on recording a podcast with 80,000 hours. I believe <laughs> this is important because most of the social innovations require not just legitimacy from the theoretical sense, but also understandability from the pedagogical sense. Unless people can articulate why is it important to wash your hands and wear a mask and so on, uh, there's no chance for any such innovations to work in mass, and which is why I believe podcasts like this is very important. I, uh, I think podcasts like this are very important as well. But uh, what, what about over the last month or year? What kinds of uh, active things have you had on the boil? We're trying to launch our own podcast in the style oh, really? of 80,000 hours. And we're just working on the, the kind of interview plan. And I've never done this before. I mean, I've never been a host, only a guest yeah. right, of the, the podcast format. But we do believe that the kind of work that we're doing, combating the pandemic with no lockdown, combating the infodemic with no takedown and so on, has the ability to resonate with a wider reach of a global audience. And so while I've participated in more Mandarin speaking podcasts and so on in the communities of Mandarin speaking podcasters and so on, I believe there's also a equal or even larger audience if we have a kind of English only podcast where we answer questions from the Twitterverse and things like that, as you know, you do on your podcast. So when I say podcast is important, I don't just mean to flatter you. <laughs> there's a bit of that, but but I'm actually working on that. That was my previous meeting. Yeah, yeah. It it seems like a lot of people have asked you to do interviews over the last few years. I guess because Taiwan seems to have been a real pioneer in a whole lot of these areas that you've been working on. I mean, it's it's been uh, well recognized for doing a really good job controlling COVID nineteen at a relatively low social cost, but also, I mean, if I've been reading the the history right in preparing for this interview, it seems like the 2014 protests led to a real sea change in how the Taiwanese government interacts with the general public, how it collaborates with with volunteers and citizens and gets information from people. And it's kind of stuff that I'm not really aware of any other government doing. Is is that kind of right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's many city government, municipal governments mm. doing that sort of things. But of course, Taiwan is more than 23 million people. So on this scale, I would say that Taiwan is really quite unique. And it's partly because the 2014 Occupy was not really just a protest. It's not just a demonstration against something, but rather it's a demonstration with something. It's a demo in the sense of demo scene, right? Uh, Half a million people on the street, many more online, can actually manage to reach a kind of roughly agreeable consensus around a cross-strait service and trade agreement so that it actually formed the consensus on, for example, whether we allow PRC so-called market forces into our 4G infrastructure back in 2014. Of course, nowadays people are talking about the same things, I mean, 5G, right? But the kind of conversations at that scale was not previously thought possible. Yeah. Do you know what format the podcast is going to take? Yeah, I think there's kind of three segments. The first is me doing a kind of short recap of what's going on from a Taiwanese perspective on the global issues. And then we'll invite guests that broadly align with our philosophy or broadly disalign for a debate. Mm. Uh, And then we will pose questions from the Twitterverse, from the social media to both me and the guest. So basically it will be like the two of us, but with the role reversed, I guess. Nice. Yeah. We'll come back and talk about kind of the the nuts and bolts implementation of a bunch of these different uh, Mm -hmm. projects that you've been working on later in the interview. But first off, it seems like in general, there's something of a crisis of confidence or trust in government. I I mean, Mm -hmm. these issues have always been with us, but they seem to be somewhat worse, you know, this decade than 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. that the relationship or like how much trust and confidence people have in the government in the UK, in the US, and to some extent, even in in Australia and, and Canada. And I think the main theory I have for why that is, is that the internet has 
has made it a lot easier to see when government is messing up. That in the past it was easier to cover up or just not be aware, it not be salient mm-hmm. when people are being misleading, when services are poor. People can't coordinate with their grievances to, to come together That's and complain. Right. That's right. Yes. And it seems like, to some extent, you're providing an outlet for people for to like to, yes. for, for our age. <laughs> yeah, well, but not not merely our mm-hmm. age, but also for people to like come together and explain how things could be better and help to improve them and thereby preserve to some degree of people's confidence and trust in, in, in government. Yeah, and, and I guess I think this potentially has implications beyond just the government providing good services. It has implications for how much do people trust the government to be able to do, to do anything and how much do they like their fellow citizens and things like that. Like how much do they regard themselves as part of a society that, mm-hmm. they, that they like to be a part of rather than find it a burden? Mm-hmm. So, okay, sounds like you agree. <laughs> but uh, it has, a, has, yeah, has basically yeah, definitely, had this Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I think it's, it's partly about how much government work as public servants trust the citizens because mm. trust is reciprocal. Yeah. If we don't publish things as open data, then it means kind of implicitly that we don't trust the citizens with these data. Mm. Right. If you have to file a FI request and wait for 90 days and a heavily redacted copy gets sent to you, then, of course, say something about the trust from the government <laughs> to the citizens. Right. So so by saying no, it's the other way around. We publish non-privacy related data upon collection. It means that even before I had a chance to censor or redact anything, I actually received the data the same second as any citizen or any person in the planet received the data. It's in the commons, so to speak. So that's maximal trust. It says, you know, I'm okay for people to point out the data bias because paradoxically, it means that this public servant actually takes less blame because they can now ask, so how would you like to fork? the government. How would you like to change the mass distribution so it doesn't prioritize places with better metros? Mm. Because previously we were distributing based on the physical distance on the map and not everyone on a helicopter. So it's a horrible bias for people to have to take a long bus because it doesn't really mean that the same kilometer on the map translate to the same hours of investment to travel to a nearby pharmacy. And when the OpenStreetMap community points out this, instead of defending, the minister can simply say, uh, okay, teach us how else would you do it? And because everyone has the same data and then the better distribution method was then created. And over, I think the course of 24 hours, we implemented a better pre-registration way of distributing masks. And so my, my point is that the shared data, maximizing the trust from the public service to the citizens, ensure the citizens are co-creators. And there's no excuse to just demonstrating against and not demonstrating with, uh, because you have mm-hmm. all the materials. So if you think something is bad, it, it must mean that you can articulate what's better. So please do, and then we'll implement it. Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose it's it's cooperative, but it also does pose a challenge to the general public mm-hmm. to not merely complain about things being bad, but no, also say, right, well, that's right. yeah. if it can be better, yeah. How then, else would you, then do? you have yeah. the tools. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So there's this issue of the public trust in the government, but also the government needing to trust individual citizens to be responsible with all of this information and to like make good use of it. To what extent do you think the Taiwanese public is unusually trustworthy in that sense, in a way that might not transfer to other countries that perhaps have more trolls or where there's just like less less social harmony in general? Well, first of all, I don't think there, there are actual trolls among mm. us, right? It's not like there's some other kind of being, right? <laughs> uh, so th- th- there are trolling behaviors, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think... It's a mode, um, but not a person. Yeah. It, it's a mode. Uh, and the mode is 
largely a function of the space, not the function of the person. That is to say, if you are in a, I usually use the metaphor of a digital equivalent of a nightclub of smoke for your room, you have to shout mm-hmm. to get her private bouncers, addictive drinks, and so on. Then, of course, over time, people kind of scream at top of their lungs and without the capacity to listen at scale. And it may feel kind of troll-like, I guess, when doing public deliberation on that sort of places. But exactly the same people, if you take them to the digital equivalent of a public park, of a campus, of a public library, and so on, suddenly they behave uh, like in a town hall conversation in a very pro-social way. So I think mostly is what you're optimizing for. If you're optimizing for click-through on advertisement for impulse buys, then well, good luck <laughs> finding the common grounds or rough consensus. But I wouldn't attribute that to, you know, Taiwanese people are less trollish. I would say mm-hmm. we have better digital, civic and public infrastructures. Yeah. Yeah, just to elaborate on that for, for listeners, I suppose, yeah, one of your ideas is, I guess, in the UK and the US, there's been a lot of concern about the quality of public discussion mm-hmm. between citizens yep. on, on tools like, like Facebook. And the solutions that people have proposed, uh, you know, including on this show, have been around changing the design of, of Facebook. The problem is, of course, Facebook is a private company that has its own motivations and its own incentives. And I guess in your metaphor, Facebook is like a nightclub where people are trying to right. kind people of shouting one another, it's other. rowdy. That's right. And that's the design of the place. Yeah. And you're suggesting instead of trying to improve discussion of politics on, on Facebook, instead you can design new spaces, create new places that are conducive to people getting along, people having constructive conversations, people reaching consensus, and potentially just designing your own tool that's focused with that goal in mind is potentially more promising mm-hmm. than trying to change <laughs> change Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Uh, literally town halls, right? So so yeah. when, when the question was phrased this way, then I don't have anything against like clubs, right? But uh, okay. when, when the complaint was like, uh, when we try to hold town hall conversations with our mayor in a nightclub, people get rowdy. Maybe the solution <laughs> is not to reform the night, nightlife right. district. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's focus for a while on deliberative democracy and you know mm-hmm. ways of getting more, or I guess like trying to aggregate knowledge and, and preferences of people in, in policy formation. I think one way you've tried to do that with this service, I think, is called Polis, is mm-hmm. deploying this decision making system called quadratic voting, which allows mm-hmm. people who care really strongly about an issue to have more influence over an outcome, but not completely dominated. It. It's trying to strike a balance there, and that that method came up on my interview with Vitalik Buterin back in 2019. Yeah, can you walk us through an example where quadratic voting has actually been used in in practice in Taiwan? Well, polis is polis. Uh, Quadratic voting and quadratic voting, like two very different things. Polis is more like a pro-social social media. Hmm. And uh, experience would be, for example, back in 2015, we would send this message to the taxi companies and unions and also the Uber drivers and so on, saying that we're going to hold a three weeks deliberation online where you can actually vote or downvote on all the different feelings that you have on the UberX situation where people who don't have a professional license at a time can pick up stranger based on the app recommendation on search pricing and they do it 10 times a day. How do you feel about that? Right. So it's a consultation. But the survey questions were not pre-mediated. It's actually cross-sourced. So people can say, oh, I feel passenger liability insurance is the most important. Or they can say, I'm not undercutting existing meters, I feel important. Or uh, we should empower the local church and temples uh, to run their own co-ops using the Uber-like algorithm. 
them and, and so on. So basically, whatever they say is for everyone else to upvote and downvote. But we do not measure the upvotes or downvotes by headcount. We measure it by plurality. So using k-means clustering, you can see on a two-dimensional map the people who feel close to you. And when people disagree with your sentiments, it doesn't mean you're buried. Uh, it means they're more distant, socially distant uh, <laughs> across the different clusters. You actually see the visualization as you press agree or disagree. You move toward people who resonate with your feelings. But then the twist is that we only hold ourselves accountable to the agenda that's crowdsourced by people who can manage to convince the supermajority of all the different clusters. And so the most dividing points are always visualized using principal component analysis along the X and Y axis. So people kind of, it's a gamification to bring more consensus to the table. People have to consistently find more nuanced eclectic statements to convince the people across the aisle. And if you get, you know, mobilizing 2,000 people to vote exactly the same, it actually doesn't change their position. Their group doesn't grow. Uh, It actually, the significant minorities still need to be convinced in order for their ideas to be put on the table for the consultation meeting of multi-stakeholder deliberation with Uber and taxi companies three weeks afterward. And so always we see this map at the end of the consultation where there's like five or six ideological points that people agree to disagree, very divisive. But then people spend their calories on the things where they mostly agree with with each other on most of the things, most of time, actually. And then we say, yeah, it seems normal, right? Because it's cross-source norm. Uh, So people feel that, yeah, UberX can enter Taiwan if you do this, this, and this. And then people commit their support to that and another coordination problem solved, right? So so the point here is that Uber become the Q taxi company in Taiwan, not because we forced them to, but the social norms say that they should do this, but their innovations, such as research pricing and so on, should also benefit the local church and temples and so on. So at the end of the day, it's a positive sum situation. And that is very different if you take the same town hall style conversation to Facebook. Uh, the chart mm. will be kind of a flip of that. <laughs> you will see many more calories spent on disagreements. Right. Okay. So there's a lot there. Let's unpack that a little bit gradually. I want to come back to the quadratic voting, but let's talk about this method first. So I guess you're saying you've got some difficult policy issue where there isn't an existing consensus, say, you know, should Uber be allowed to operate in Taiwan? And if so, under what conditions? And there you'll kind of crowdsource sub-questions that are related to this, Mm -hmm. like the issue of passenger safety, of pricing, of salaries, all of these different components people can Post questions that then people can vote on, saying that like mm, yes, post I, yes, I, like feelings. Ah, they post feelings. Okay, they post statements that then people can express agreement or, or disagreement with, and you use that to basically see that there'll be like different clusters of opinion. Where there'll be a whole lot of people who basically say yes, no, yes, yes, yes. They all agree on this set of feelings, and then there'll be other clusters elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that makes sense for like systematizing the disagreements and understanding them. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do in order to because you talk a lot about consensus, so like mm-hmm. building consensus. Then what do you do in order to try to get, you know... So there's uh, a scoreboard of global agreements. Okay. Right, so among all those very diverse groups, what are some of the rough consensus that nevertheless everyone can uh-huh. agree on? And then only the winners on the leaderboard. Okay, yes. so, so, so across the different clusters, you'll be like, what are the things that people do agree on, even if they disagree on other stuff? And then you try to build from there to find a policy that would match with the things that have broad support? 
Yeah, so we, we then ask the stakeholders, the taxi and Uber companies, and we list the, say, 10 broad agreements across mm. all the different clusters to them, saying that this is the, the crowdsource norm. This mm. is the agenda that we need to talk today. And this seems perfectly normal to me. So why don't you just commit on that? And if you do, what concrete items do you need from the government or from other stakeholders in order to make it happen? And at that point, of course, because uh, it's already the norm, Any anything that dissociates itself from the norm, like saying, no, I don't think insurance is important, uh, there will be kind of tremendous cost to the social trust and capital if any stakeholder actually goes against this crowdsourced broad rough consensus. So mostly they, they offer kind of technical kind of compensation and things like that that's required for them to implement this, but nobody actually goes against the crowdsourced agenda saying, no, this is not important because obviously this is important to people of all different stripes. I see. Okay, so I'm just trying to picture this in my head. So you've got the different clusters and you've got a bunch of things, goals or feelings that, that most people share. But presumably there isn't still a consensus on what the policy should be, because that's why there's a disagreement in the first place. So in order to reach, to get a majority of people to support, or like ideally a supermajority to support some particular policy proposal, do you do some kind of bargaining thing where it's like one cluster will compensate another another group in exchange for some? No, it's not about that. <laughs> Go on. No, no, no. It's about, it's about defining the solution space together. Right. So as the three weeks goes by, you, you literally see the clusters inching closer to one another because mm-hmm. they found some broad principles like not undercutting existing meters, insurance and so on that actually convinced them themselves mm. that if you implement those values, then I can actually live with it. It's not perfect, but they can live with it. And so once the crowd sees a reflection of its own blended preferences, then that's the political moment to talk to the stakeholders, saying that our citizens already broadly agreed on those 10 design criteria. Now it's our job as policymakers to craft a policy that can actually satisfy all the 10 criteria that's already broadly agreed upon by people who initially feel very differently. Mm, Okay. Okay. So you've got the clusters, people understand different views, and there's some things that people agree on. And then you're saying you generally see a process whereby people converge, they begin to agree more and more because you've started to highlight the goals and the feelings that they share. And then they can make persuasive arguments on the basis of shared values that will appeal to the other clusters. And ultimately, then, like, obviously, you won't eliminate the disagreements, but you'll reduce the disagreements. And then there'll be enough of a shared set of opinions that there actually is a policy that someone can go away and, or like the group can go away and write that will satisfy most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called overlapping consensus. And, and that's yeah. uh, how internet protocols are made, by the way. Hmm. It's through humming. We, we don't do humming. It's more of a visual mm-hmm. hum, but it, it's the same principle. Okay. Has this worked consistently when it's been applied? Or are there some times when it's like people just disagree too much and, they, and you, don't, you don't reach a, a reasonable consensus? So over the more than 100 collaboration meetings, exactly zero of them ended in disaster, right? Okay. So, so, and so we've had a really good record. And the reason why is that you can always make the thing more specific. Hmm. And for example, the Uber case, if we started saying, what are we going to do to the sharing economy? 
then then it may not converge. It, it may mm. just diverge, right? Uh, yeah. Because it's too broad, and people don't actually mean the same feeling when they say things about the sharing economy, right? People may prefer actually to call it a gig economy or the platform economy or things like that, right? Mm. But when we say you know licensed but not professionally licensed. Driver commuting to work, picking up strangers, charging them for it. It's so specific that people of very different ideologies nevertheless share the same feelings more often than not when it comes to insurance, for example. So uh, if you look at the conversations and feel that it may be diverging, then it can always be improved by restating the question in an even more specific way. I see. So it sounds like, to some extent, this is a tool for having extremely productive and clear conversations across mm-hmm. groups of people who don't agree. And it's through that like very good communication and being very clear about what you are saying and aren't saying, and I guess not amplifying the views of people who are going to derail the conversation, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. in general, that then leads to, if not universal agreement, at least like a reasonable majority opinion that you can then, that you can then go with. Because there's no reply button, there's literally no way to derail the conversation. Right, yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, I mean, one part of your vibe is people should be able to like share their opinions. They should be able to make the tools that they want. Society should be very open. We like want people to contribute mm-hmm. their ideas. Uh, but then I've heard on your other interviews, you say that like a key design aspect of Polis is that there is no reply button. So people can't. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, why do you think that sort of closure to response is really valuable in that case, even though in general, we want people to be able to provide their opinions. That's kind of the key goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're talking about a public issue, which is by definition interpersonal. And taking a interpersonal statement and making it personal, as in a personal attack, is almost always unconstructive. Hmm. So if someone's saying something that I disagree with, how can I contribute my rebuttal or Uh my alternative opinion? Yeah, you you just press disagree on the statement. Okay. And then you frame your own feelings, your counter argument in a independent statement that other people then agree or disagree on. I see. Do you think that in general, this is a useful way, like a way that people could have better conversations, you know, not just on this platform, but in general is like, rather than responding, instead, you just state more clearly your view and then try to get people to, mm-hmm. to agree with that. Yeah, basically forking, right? So, so yes, <laughs> right. R- rather than, you know, fighting to get your commits committed, you, you fork and then your commits are automatically committed. Yeah. And the key difference there is that because you're not you know, attacking or directly responding to a specific individual, it doesn't become personal. You don't get as strong, like negative feelings coming up. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. What's the most difficult case that you've dealt with on the, on the platform? Well, there's multiple cases that were very difficult to solve on a abstract sense. For example, kind of generally the same rights and duties for marriage equality. Uh, That's Mm. a petition topic that's constantly reoccurring before we actually legalized marriage equality. But but of course, it's a difficult conversation because what marriage means to the 20 different national languages, so many more cultures in Taiwan, the, the meaning of marriage is different. There's people who believe that marriage is between two families and the individuals are just their representatives or their 
there's people who believe that wedding is between individuals and their families has no say in it and, and so on. So it's a very difficult solution space. It's highly multidimensional, so to speak. So the way to solve that is not to make it even more complicated. It's rather to reduce it to kind of very individual things. Mm-hmm. For example, we've had a very successful collaboration meeting on the rights of the women who are not in a heterosexual marriage at the time marriage equality was not legalized, mm-hmm. uh, not in a heterosexual marriage to be receiving the state subsidies and so mm-hmm. on for artificial insemination and so on. So, so it becomes so specific and the stakes are mostly for people in the future generation who literally have not been born yet. Uh, and so it became quite easy, actually, for people of different religions, of different traditions, and so on, to talk about this very specific case on preparing the society of more accepting. And actually, it covers single mothers' families, too, and so on. So basically, make it more intersectional and inclusive. And we did get pretty good rough consensus based on that collaboration meeting. But that's because we didn't try to define marriage on that meeting. Mm. But as those very specific rough consensus are produced, more and more people will begin to see, and they did see in Taiwan, that actually we're not that different. People Mm. care about the importance of a long-lasting relationship. And maybe we can solve this, you know, mother-in-law, father-in-law question by saying homosexual people, when they wed, uh, their families don't. So there's no in-law relationship, just a by-law relationship. And so that, so basically innovations start to, to come up if you have some initial success in getting the rough overlapping consensus on specific issues. And finally, when we actually legalized marriage equality after two referendums, then we actually took in a lot of those innovations, including, you know, marrying the, the bylaw, but not the in-laws. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a really key phenomenon here is that the more specific the question, the more agreement you have. And it's super interesting that that's the case. It kind of reminds me of, I think there's the US, US in this exact moment in time seems particularly bad for people talking at a very like abstract level about values. And that seems to amplify mm-hmm. disagreements. It reminds me of this uh, case I heard where it's, if you ask people, you know, are they in general pro-gun rights or anti-gun rights? Mm-hmm. Then they tend to kind of split pretty 50-50. But the more specific you are about like, should someone be able to buy this gun under this condition and like carry it in this location? More concrete, specific questions tend to have much more agreement than the, than the general values questions. Why do you think that is? Well, mostly because the feelings about specific cases feel relatable, but mm. feelings around abstract ideologies isn't that relatable. There's much more psychological projections going on when you see a loaded term, right? But when it's very concrete, there's no, not that much room anyway for psychological projections to, to take place. And people generally converge on a shared understanding of what's actually going on when you become that specific. And also it makes kind of trade-offs seem not like trade-offs, but opportunities for innovation. Because in specific cases, there's always the possibility to resolve previous zero-sum tensions by introducing some new innovations to the table. But if it's, you know, time-honored ideological debates, it's very difficult to find (laughs) genuine innovations that solve such zero-sum trade-offs. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it is the case that we get stuck and talk the most about the stuff that is the most intractable <laughs> because the other things have been solved and we and we moved on. Mm-hmm. I guess a concern that I would have with Polis or potentially like all platforms of this kind is that the people who participate in them 
could well be like non-representative of the population of Taiwan as a whole. You know, in particular, you imagine people who are working full time, people who have children, for example, they might have Mm -hmm. particular views in general, but they won't have as much time to participate in these online platforms, proposing their views and and, Mm -hmm. and voting on them. And so they could be Mm -hmm. underrepresented. Yeah. What can you potentially do about that? Which is why we don't measure headcounts. Okay. Yeah. So do you do some sort of weighted voting? No, people who vote the same are counted as just one dot. Okay. Right. So we're measuring the general plurality, the the spectrum. I see. So we're not measuring majority. The the term majority doesn't even enter the conversation. Okay. The supermajority means if you take each unique cluster of feelings as a representative, it doesn't matter its, um, its constituents count. It's the configuration of preference that counts. And then the supermajority is between those clusters. Wow. Okay. So, so if me and someone else, we both basically have exactly the same opinions on like mm-hmm. the same feelings towards all of the statements that people put forward, then we're effectively counted kind of as as one person. I guess that then raises the alternative concern that there could be ninety nine percent of people might all feel the same, and then they get counted as kind of one one person or one headcount. Oh, you're not using headcount, but they get counted as like one opinion. And then there could be 1% of the population that will agree on a different thing and they get counted equally. Is that a worry? No, not at all. So of course, maybe that 99% was, you know, a civil attack, right? So, <laughs> right? so, so maybe it's all pseudonyms. Uh, well, of course, we in practice, like in the joint platform, you have to first authenticate through SMS. So we don't know who you are, but you can't arbitrarily create 5,000 accounts unless you can manufacture 5,000 SIM cards where, mm. you know, the money laundering office may want to talk to you. Right? So basically the, the point here is that it's not limitless character generation, so to speak. But even with this constraint of SMS-based authentication, if you have just two persons or even just one individual who feel very different from everyone else on a high dimensional space, uh, because each sentiment is one additional dimension, Mm. you can still kind of find the closest cluster that this person kind of drifts toward. And mostly Mm. because if they represent their own cluster, people will click on the cluster and learn about their statement. And because to to win on the leaderboard, you have to convince them. So you have to propose something that at least convince the person who are sympathetic to that person's views. So bridges are made kind of dynamically on a high enough dimensional space, because in a high dimensional space, actually everything is quite distant to each other. It's hard yeah. to imagine from a three-dimensional setting, but if you are in a, you know, usually in polis, we have around 100 or 200 dimensions. Uh, mm. Everyone is very far from each other. So we are looking at that more holistically rather than just saying, oh, there's a few outliers. We don't actually think in terms like that. We measure in the degree of plurality. Yeah. Yeah. I think to put that in layman's terms, if you have a hundred different statements that people can agree or disagree with, then it'll be rare for two people to agree on every single one of them. So people end up far apart in space in that sense. But then if you're like, in general, these people agreed on most of the answers, then you can say, well, in, in this other sense, with like fewer dimensions of variation, that they're actually quite close together. I still, okay, maybe this isn't the rabbit hole that we should go down, but I keep envisaging ways that this could be gamed in a sense, or at least that it could be like non-representative and people might feel, you know, most people agree with me, but our views aren't getting getting enough weight and feeling frustrated by that. Yeah, but but the point is that you have this, this mental model of a jury maybe, uh, yeah. or of a citizen's assembly trying to settle a referendum decision, perhaps. So a, a body that has decisional power. But as I mentioned, what we're crowdsourcing is just an agenda. 
So it's on the very huh. beginning. It's on the problem definition stage. Mm. So it's essentially just brainstorming. When, when you're brainstorming, statistical representative doesn't doesn't really matter, really. Mm. But what you want is a space where it's very difficult to shout someone down because mm. the the embryo, the the beginning, the radical of a idea is important for it to be resonating with a supporting infrastructure so that it can actually grow into something that actually is a genuine innovation out of this wicked problem configuration. Right. So it's more like an incubator stage of ideas. But when the agenda are created, they're not binding on a decisional sense. It's only binding in a sense of agenda setting, like the stakeholder must talk about these things, but it's mm. not decisional. So it, it relieves most of the tensions that we attribute to the final allocation of decision-making power, like in a jury. Yeah, interesting. And it sounds like the thing that you're really incentivized to do is to make a statement that people in other clusters will agree with. So people who usually disagree with you, you got to say something that you believe that they also believe. Okay. And so this incentivizes you to understand their position and find common ground, basically. Okay. And, and why is that my incentive? Because then those shared views basically get elevated. And those are the things that potentially go forward in the process as the design criteria. Those become the design criteria for policymaking. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot more that I'd love to understand about this. Is it in, I guess, I'm guessing this is in Mandarin, right? Uh, well, it, there, there's papers published, especially on the Uber case. So right. a lot okay. of it, if you go to pol.is, you can find the studies and mathematical analysis and things like that. Okay, yeah, I might, um, we'll, we'll stick up a link to that. And I might, uh, might get some more links from you because I think this is a super interesting system and I, I'd, <laughs> I'd love someone in the audience to try to carry it forward and, and try to apply it outside of Taiwan. Is there any downside to these kind of direct democratic systems that, you know, maybe ordinary people feel like they have to be participating in in this public platform or other platforms when they would say rather be taking care of their children or doing their job or playing sports or pursuing other hobbies? Is there any sense in which this is a burden to citizens? Well, it, it's unlike a jury where you have to participate, mm. right? But it's fun, like a game. As I mentioned, everyone probably have two minutes of kindness. So mm-hmm. taking two minutes out, I mean, you p- people do internet surveys all the time. So <laughs> if it just takes you two minutes to do an internet survey and it has a real policymaking opportunity, then people generally is happy to do that and share with their friends and families. But if it means going through, you know, huge amount of threads and threats uh, and so on, then of course mm-hmm. it's less attractive to people. So a lot of thought have been given to make sure that the time feels rewarding and you don't have to spend a lot of time in this kind of platform because we, we cherish people's time. And we also want to make sure that they want to participate in a diverse range of these petitions or surveys or brainstorming spaces without being kind of overcaptured by any one particular topic, unless, of course, they feel really motivated. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was thinking with the the feeling of obligation to participate, people might feel that Mm -hmm. if they were like, I really need my views to be counted. I really need the the views of people and people like me to be included. I guess because you're not doing the head counting thing, because it's not a voting system, you don't have to worry so much because as long as there's a few people who kind of share your values on the platform, then it's like you don't have to get involved in order to like, Make sure that you're like <laughs> a dominating or, or you know, getting a big weight in the in the conversation, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. which is quite different. I suppose another concern that many people, including me, have with these more direct democracy participatory things is that you know, with the Uber case, there's presumably some academics, some like real experts in this question of sharing economy. You know, how has Uber gone well or badly in other countries? 
who might have a lot more expertise to bring to the table when it comes to drafting legislation on how to deal with it. And just an ordinary person, like someone who's participating in this, talking about, you know, how do they feel as a rider or as an existing taxi driver, is going to know that literature much less. And there'll be some things that, that they'll miss. But it sounds like you basically, you don't throw out that expertise of legislators or of academics. Not uh, at all. Be- Not because at all. it comes in at the next stage. Yeah, they're the people who participate in the multi-stakeholder forum. Okay, so that's the next stage of the process where... Yeah, the, the of- face-to-face live-streamed multi-stakeholder forum where we agree to bind ourselves to talk about the police crowdsource agenda and only these as the agenda. So the expertise, as you mentioned, in comparative legislation and things like that is used to find good solutions within the broadly defined solution space. I see. Okay, so so then you'll have a live streamed discussion where you'll invite a whole lot of people who I guess that they've been they've been selected by someone for some reason because because they know a lot about this topic mm-hmm. or they're representative of a group and they've committed to talking about the shared values or the or the shared desiderata that have come out of this desired policy properties. Okay, yep. is there anything you want to say about how those events are run that has allowed them to to go better than they otherwise might? Well, if you look at the participation officer website, POW.PDIS.TW, or the collaborative meetings website, CN.PDIS.TW, we explain our methodologies quite clearly there. And maybe we can do that as a kind of URL to link to instead of me having to uh, go through the, the whole playbook here. But, but there's a methodology and uh, we've run more, as I mentioned, more than 100 of those either live streamed or at least transcript published recordings there. And there's many case studies also. So yeah, I, I would just refer you to digitalminister.tw and the two subsites that explains this mechanism. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll stick up links to those. Yeah. Just coming back to polis and people making statements and, and agreeing and disagreeing. What are the limits on, say, the length or like the style that they can be in? Because you could, in theory, make a statement that is kind of that is just a reply. That's like this other person mm-hmm. said X, and I think that's wrong because of because uh, of Y. And then you kind of have got a reply button. Do you have to impose some constraints? Yeah, usually is around one hundred and forty characters, okay, or two hundred and eighty letters, mm. I think. So tweet length. Yeah. Uh, so I basically, see. it's it's a tweet like. Phenomena, but if the statement doesn't make any sense, people can also press pause, mm. right? So, and then it, it doesn't result in a kind of move in the high dimensional space of statements and clusters. Okay, I suppose. What if I have quite a complicated argument for why I feel a particular way that doesn't fit in that number of characters? Then, well, what do I do? Uh-huh. But the thing is that the explanation, the kind of supporting facts and so on, are for the multi-stakeholder. Development That's stage. the next stage. Yeah. What, what we're doing now is the discover stage. Okay. Right? So the discover stage, all it matters is that I feel this way. It's, it's more like a gut feeling than anything else. Like X dimension must be taken care of or you must avoid the Y dimension. Now, mm. the actual data, evidence and so on are very important, but that's why we have the experts on the multi-stakeholder forum. So this is more about aggregating values and preferences. And then the next stage is more about beliefs and empirical information and so on. Exactly. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
let's leave polis for a minute and come back to the quadratic voting. So yeah, so just to explain quadratic voting briefly, basically, you know, you get a particular number of voting credits in effect. And if you want to give a project one vote, then it costs you one credit. If you want to give them two votes, it costs you four credits because two squared is four. And likewise, three votes, it costs you nine credits. So it gives you a reason to look around at a wide range of different projects and not just put all of your all of your votes, all of your credits towards your friend's thing or the thing that you like the most. Instead, you like want to basically spread out, spread out your, your influence over a bunch of different projects. So, so what's a case in which you have been involved in an experiment or an application of, of quadratic voting? Mm-hmm. It's the presidential hackathon with the meta self-describing trophies. Okay. And what, uh, what happened there? Yeah, can you talk about it? Sure. So basically, the idea here is that anyone can propose an idea that requires significant investment from the government in order to solve one or more of the sustainable development goal challenges global challenges. And then, of course, there's limited bandwidth of governmental input to ideas like this. So basically, while anyone can propose an idea, the idea that resonates with the most of the people eventually gets the incubation it needs to progress to the next stage. So out of, say, 200 or so projects, at the end of the day, after a couple of months, we select only 20 teams to go through the incubation. And finally, five teams received the presidential trophy. So from the 200 teams, each corresponding to one or more of SDGs, uh, to the 20, we ask anyone who are SMS authenticated participants to allocate 99 points to those 200 projects. But it's quadratic, meaning that if you really like a project, the most you can vote is nine votes, which translate to 81 credit points because you don't have 100, so you can't vote 10 votes, sorry. So the point here is that because if you don't design things this way, the most likely is that just people vote for for their friend's project with all their points and they don't even bother to look at the other ideas to find synergies and so on. So the incentive here is that after voting for nine votes, spending 81, so you have 18 left, people are incentivized to look at least at three other project because nobody wants to squander their points. So they yeah. like something else. They vote four votes, 16. They still have two points left. They look at two others and they discover actually these two work better than the original one. So they take some of the votes back. Maybe they do a seven and seven, six and six and two or whatever, yeah. right? So the point here is that on average, each person then votes for four or more, like six or seven different projects that they perceive that have some sort of synergy, right? Mm. So, and then that's it. And then we tally the votes. And because the marginal cost of each vote is the same as marginal return, the impact of the, the vote. So we always get the broad set of 20 projects that makes everyone feel they have won a little bit. Yeah, And then the project that didn't make the cut have a clear kind of synergy map where they can reallocate their talents to the one or two of the 20 projects that actually resonates the, the most with them. So again, like Polis, this is a way to use mechanism design to kind of reverse game, the, the voting game, to make mm-hmm. sure that people want to share the most of their expertise on finding synergies between the incubating projects. Yeah, yeah. Is there a way of telling whether this has led to a better outcome in this case? Maybe you can just look at it and see intuitively that the results seem seem good. Mm-hmm. Seem more balanced. 
And also, I think mostly it's just looking at the actual voting behavior. It would fail if most of the voters just vote for nine votes, discard the 18, right? Then, then it becomes the same as one person, one vote, right? Yeah. Just with more clicks, right? Nine more clicks. But no, people don't behave this way. And we publish as open data, the actual voting mm-hmm. results of previous presidential hackathons. So people are free to do their own analysis. But qualitatively speaking, people really like the fact that some of their supported projects won. And they also like the fact that they found some synergy between their pet projects or friends' projects and some other projects. Uh, But for more elaborate analysis, I encourage you to look at Gitcoin, which is actually putting kind of real money on the table Mm. (laughs) instead of just votes. There's kind of an implicit funding part in it, which I think increased the payout even more. Of course, more risk of civil attacks too. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, quadratic funding, I think, exemplifies the good parts of quadratic voting that we see in presidential hackathon, but we have not yet implemented quadratic funding in our participatory budgeting. Yeah. So I guess a key concern that people have had with quadratic funding and with quadratic voting is that you potentially, I mean, you were saying people can register with an SMS. So as long as they have a SIM card, then they can potentially get a bunch more votes. And so in this case, obviously, someone could sign up with a whole lot of SIM cards. And in in other cases, you uh, could potentially get an advantage by basically convincing a friend to like spend some of your credit. So basically coordinating in order to like pretend to have more spread out preferences than you actually do. That's right. I guess you were saying, you know, if someone tries to order 5,000 SIM cards in order to game this system or, or other government systems, like people will get onto them. But I guess you could have a problem on a smaller scale where someone, you know, has three different mobile phones, 10 mobile phones, they're probably not going to get caught and they, they, they could be rigging, rigging the system. Is that, a, is that a meaningful worry or is it kind of controllable? It's somewhat controllable because if someone uses three SIM cards in a very short succession vote exactly the same, then it became a kind of solvable problem of bot detection, right? Mm, Uh, And so that could be one of the ways to address this. Another way is basically instead of the 200 projects as a static list, maybe those projects themselves, uh, kind of rating of those projects, are also crowdsourced like a a polis-like situation. And then we say in polis, if you feel very similarly, actually, then you share the pool of votes. So there's a linear mm-hmm. part and then there's a quadratic part. You only get access to a quadratic part if you're actually diverse enough and, and so on. So, uh, I mean, you can combine those design principles in various different ways, but we're, we're not doing theoretical like search for optimality. Uh, what mm-hmm. we're doing is that it, it gives a better feeling to most participants compared to one person, one vote. And for that, we've already succeeded. So it doesn't need to be mm. approximately optimal. It only needs to be better than what the previous technology is. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned quadratic funding, which is, I guess, this more elaborate extension of quadratic voting mm-hmm. uh, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have plans to actually try to experiment with that in an application? Yes. So what we're now doing is that we would like to implement what we call the pay for success model, which was actually reinvented uh, called retroactive public funding. But it's actually the same thing, right? So Mm -hmm. pay for success or social impact bond, many different names. It's this basic idea that the government, instead of giving out a contract or subsidy, gives out a promise that a independent board assesses 
whether a project have delivered some return of investment in the social sense or in the environmental sense. And by the end of that evaluation period, the government is committed to pay out in the form of awards of, to the work that's already done. And then the idea here is that then people can securitize this, right? That they can take this governmental promise and then start kind of early angel stage funding or whatever funding to pay for the actual investment they need to do in order to achieve that common good. And so this innovation works really well with quadratic funding because the panel of judges previously is either a few people that the government trusts a lot, but then maybe they're not diverse enough. Or it's just crowdfunding, but then people with a lot more money actually speaks louder, almost by definition, in the crowdfunding scenario. So quadratic funding is like between a panel of award committee and pure crowdfunding and choose something in the middle that has hopefully the benefit of both. But of course, Gitcoin is still experimenting a lot on preventing civil attacks and so on on, on this middle ground. And it probably needs to be a little bit more mature before we can actually implement it in our pay-for-success designs. Yeah. Just, I guess, yeah, we haven't explained quadratic funding and because it's a bit too technical here, but we'll stick up a link for people mm-hmm. who want to learn more. And it, I think it's been explained on some previous episodes that we'll link to. You probably heard of citizens' juries, which are this idea of when you have a difficult policy issue, you will like randomly choose 100 citizens or something, you know, something like 100 citizens to come for a weekend or say a week conversation or deliberation process mm-hmm. where they'll try to figure out what they agree on, come up with proposals and try to reach some broad consensus. Yeah. How do you feel about that more like in-person, slightly more formal approach to, to kind of, yeah, no, we, reaching, we do reaching consensus? Too. Okay. Oh, yeah. Tell, tell me no, about we, that. We do that too in Taiwan. <laughs> yeah. The, the initial design, the success criteria for the national health insurance system, the universal health care system that covers even dentist visits uh, in Taiwan, <laughs> was crowdsourced that way using a sortition-based citizens' jury uh, assembly. There's quite a few other cases as well about the uh, kind of repurposing of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall mm. about transitional justice. That's another thing that has used the sortition method and so on. So it doesn't feel strange. But on the other hand, it's probably only doable on very significant, worthy projects. The upfront investment on the kind of pedagogy front, uh, also the informed conversation front, and also giving people sufficient materials to come back to their community and share that with, you know, the people that feel similar to them. That's also important. Otherwise, it loses legitimacy and so on. So basically, it's a huge investment. So for things like the Chiang kai Memorial Hall or the National Healthcare System Design, it, of course, pays off to fund something like that. But if we're going to say, no, let's do a citizen's jury on any citizen's petition, on each petition once a week or twice a month, uh, it it becomes kind of hard to justify because maybe these things like changing time zones of Taiwan to plus nine doesn't really warrant this sort of investment. (laughs) Yeah, not enough people agree, yeah. Um, In the UK, we have this system where people can put petitions to parliament and if a particular number of signatures goes on the proposal Mm -hmm. and people agree with it, then the government needs to formally respond. And that seems fine, but I'm not aware of it kind of making any big differences to policy or how the public feels about their relationship with the government. I guess... Given your experiences, do you have any idea of like why this hasn't made a bigger a bigger difference, or yeah, why it isn't more useful? I think the the bandwidth the bandwidth mm. was lower than ours, right? I see. Because if you are a someone who joined in the petition to provide your signature, there's a zero, almost zero chance, a negligible chance that you will actually be consulted to co-create a solution. 
basically your your signature only said it's important and that's all. And only the initiator maybe uh, receive a phone call or something uh, from mm. the parliamentarian. But in the Taiwanese design, in our collaboration meetings, all the petitioners get a formal invitation to join mm. on the multi-stakeholder conversation. And for people who don't have the traveling conditions, then they can also join us through live streaming. And then we use another police-like tool called Slido. Actually, many people use that nowadays. It's not just for deliberative democracy. So it's like a kind of real-time version, whereas Polis takes three weeks or more, Slido takes maybe four hours, right? But during those four hours, listening in to the live stream, people can propose their own ideas and also upvote, but not downvote on people's ideas. And so uh, augmented with Slido and live streaming and so on, there's much more bandwidth to be had to the collaboration meeting as a result of the petition as compared to simply just a textual input to the petition or just adding your name on it. And so for a career public service, it makes a world of difference because it's not just about clarifying the demand, but about innovating, right? Mm. So our petition platform learns a page from Better Reykjavik uh, from Iceland that people actually can propose their pro-arguments and counter-arguments on two different columns again, upvoting and downvoting, again, without the reply button. Mm. So basically, when we actually hold a face-to-face collaboration meeting, we take the kind of cream of the crop on the pro and counter arguments and Mm. then say, you know, let's collaborate and take that as the design criteria. These are the things that we must take care of. And these are the risks and dangers that we must take care to avoid. And then let's co-create something that's better. And so then it's much more input that's more likely to result in something that reduces the burden and also reduces the risk for the career public servants involved. Hmm. Let's let's move on and talk a little bit about your personal history. It seems like mm-hmm. you like seriously got involved in politics in 2014 when you got involved in the Sunflower student movement. Yeah, what were your what were your goals when you got involved in the student protests? Well, to make sure that humor and facts spread faster than rumor. Because at the time, I've already read a sufficient amount of Manuel Castells and other Occupy movements and see how they could spiral out of control. Mm. Right? So there's a lot of hope, a lot of social solidarity and so on. But it's also very easy to get nowhere because of the essentially the infodemic, right? There's just so much information on so many different accounts and so on. It feels very difficult actually to get listened to. And as the Occupy movement continues, it becomes harder and harder to get into something of a coherence because it's all inclusive. Anyone can join the conversation. So the main contribution that GovZero, me included, made is to make sure that there is this consistent kind of public ledger Mm -hmm. of what what conversation actually transpired within the Occupy Parliament and in the street near the Parliament. The 20 or so NGOs all contributed to kind of be more specific. So one corner talk about labor conditions after the cross-strait agreement, one talk about cybersecurity and 4G and things like that, right? So basically, each become a more focused conversation facilitated by professional facilitators. And our work is just to make sure that those rough consensus cross-pollinate more easily because after all, we all want this demonstration to go somewhere instead of nowhere. So that's my motivation, I guess. Yeah. So so when the protests occupied the parliament, basically you conducted your own parliamentary proceedings of a sort, where you had your own deliberations mm-hmm. about, about different about different topics. How were they different or more open than what the parliament was already doing? 
as I mentioned, it's essentially open space technology, right? So it's not just the parliament itself, but the streets around the parliament. And each non-governmental organization, uh, part of the uh, Occupy movement, can set up their own forum. And they need to be, I guess, interesting because people vote with their feet, right? So this is just giant open space technology facilitated in a nonviolent manner. And so our work as recorders and documenters is to make sure that the topics themselves don't diverge. Instead, uh, because the proceedings are captured, the rough consensus are captured and so on, uh, people can start a day not from the blank state, but from the kind of rough consensus, the common feelings as agreed upon by the previous day. Mm. And this made the overall collective intelligence converge very, very gradually, but eventually on the set of demands that are coherent in themselves. And also because of the live streaming, violence doesn't pay because the the perpetrators are discovered very quickly. And also because of the live streaming. So the rumors that tend to kind of pollute the Occupy movements, like, you know, one corner is under political assault by the police and so Mm. on. And these things don't spread because people can then check with their phone on the live streaming that they're actually doing quite well, right? So, So basically more bandwidth and then more truth and less need to believe the conspiracy theorists and so on. I imagine that critics at the time would have said, well, you're just a bunch of people who feel like a non-representative group who feel very passionately about this issue and you're taking over the parliament, but you don't have the same legitimacy that the, you know, elected representatives who were elected by, Mm -hmm. you know, the majority or at least a plurality of people have to be Mm -hmm. doing these proceedings in parliament. Like (laughs) there's a reason why people can't just like walk into parliament and take a seat. Yeah. What what's your response to that? Well, then, of course, that was indeed a topic in the National Forum on Economic uh, and Trade right after the Occupy. Mm. But the, the topic was that, can we actually do this sort of collective intelligence and deliberation without people feeling the need to occupy the parliament all the time? Mm. So basically, there's a sense of urgency, because if the trade agreement passed, then it creates a precedent of even constitutional importance because one of the theories was that it's just a domestic agreement with Beijing, so it doesn't Mm. need the same process as other international trade agreements and and things like that, right? So it creates a a quite dangerous, uh, so to speak, precedent that everything else can then be done in a similar way. And then as time goes by, basically Taiwan becomes Hong Kong, right? So so that was the, the initial urgency. Now, but the constructive thing is that people have seen that the deliberative conversations actually leads us somewhere. So it's not mobs if you create a real town hall. So the National Forum for Economic and Trade basically said, yeah, we need to have a national petition platform. We need to have not seven days, but at least 60 days of regulatory conversation announcement period like the U.S. But at the time, you know, Taiwan does a lot of regulations in just seven days without people even being aware of it and so on. So a lot of reforms for more democratic participations was the social norm then, and which was then ratified by the administration. So it's not that Dr. Tsai Ing-wen was the first to implement these. Actually, Dr. Ma Ying-jeou and the Mao Zhuguo uh, cabinet, the Simon Zhang cabinet after that in 2014-15, implemented many of the sweeping reforms and changes as demanded by the National Forum on Trade and Economy right after the Sunflower Occupy. So we're not saying that we go back to the parliament all the time. We're saying uh, we may have to do that if there's no transparent and participatory process for things like this. Yeah. 
in what situations in other countries now say, would it be appropriate or inappropriate for citizens to go and occupy a parliament building and conduct their own, you know, similar thoughtful deliberations there? Well, I think one of the main points here is the nonviolent communication nature, mm. right? So it's one thing to to have a half a million people listening to one another. It's another thing to kind of be kind of verbally or physically abusing each other. So mm. the term occupy means different thing to different people. So maybe we're talking about it much more abstract than, than we, we should be. But the point I'm making is that civil disobedience in a public demonstration only works if, like in the police conversation, you can afford the same freedom of assembly and speech to the people who are diametrically opposed to your ideas. Indeed, during the Sunflower Occupy, I also personally helped the connectivity and the live streaming know-how and so on to the people who are very much pro-unification and so on. So the point here is that it needs to be founded on the same democratic principles in order to have any legitimacy. Mm. Uh, If it's about excluding people from the sort of conversation they want to have, who may actually start very differently, but may converge, actually, if you exclude these people, then there's no legitimacy in occupying anymore. Yeah, yeah. I guess, so it seems like the protests have led to systematic changes in how the Taiwanese government does its business. But I guess the the proximal concern, as you were saying, was this cross-strait service trade agreement between Taiwan Mm -hmm. and China. I suppose at at the time, were advocates in favour of that agreement, like encouraged to come and speak in parliament and, you know, make the case? Yes, yes, definitely. I think everyone, whether they're pro or con that agreement, doesn't really want it to be passed without any deliberation. Mm. And so that was the objection, was that it was being rushed through and not even being considered properly. Exactly, exactly. Because at the time, the rationale was that because it's a non-international domestic Mm. agreement, uh, so it doesn't need to go through the same process. And that's what worries people. I see. Okay. Yeah, it's very interesting that people know something about the relationship between the People's Republic of China and Taiwan, the Republic of China. I'm surprised that the Taiwanese government was taking the position that an agreement with the People's Republic of China was a domestic agreement rather than an international treaty. (laughs) Uh, Why were they doing that out of political convenience? Part of that maybe is that, and uh, I certainly can't speak for the Mainjo administration, Mm -hmm. right? But uh, I think partly is also because of, at a time, there was a kind of global hope that by including more and more into the World Trade Organization and the free trade kind of rule of law, uh, international norms, uh, the PRC itself will democratize. Mm. So, so that was actually around the turn of century. Many people actually believe that. And I'm sure some of them still believe that. Mm. <laughs> and so it was uh, under a very different political atmosphere is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Right, right, right. Yeah, I guess... With the benefit of, I suppose, now eight years of of hindsight, are you glad that the cross-strait service trade agreement was never actually signed and, and, and implemented, that it was prevented from going through? Well, I'm glad that deliberative democracy are now seen as pretty legitimate in Taiwan. Mm. I'm glad that the demonstration means that the public servants don't fear 5,000 people. Uh, Mm -hmm. They now treat 5,000 people signing an online petition, not as mobs, but as co-creators. So the demonstration itself, in a sense of a demo, worked as a proof of concept very well. Now, whether that trade agreement itself makes sense or or not, I don't think that's very easy to, to answer because the configuration in 2014 
nobody would anticipate the kind of different geopolitical issues and so on that we now today see, right? So mm. I wouldn't say I- I'm glad that it didn't pass, but I would say that I'm glad that the fact that it's passed in such a rushed manner invoked the civil society to give legitimacy to the social sector and to social sector-led innovation processes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's move on from the Sunflower student movement and talk about technologies broadly construed that, that you're excited and not excited about. If you were 18 again and needed to work on some kind of technology-focused project, yeah, well, what's one idea for something that you, that you might choose? Well, I mean, I'm still working on the same project, right? Democracy as a social <laughs> technology for swift trust and things like that. Yeah. Uh, that was my research topic when I was 15. So I guess I, I never uh, switched never to a different yeah. project. I've been working on the same project. Yeah. So if you had to work on something else, uh, yeah, what might it be? Mm-hmm. I think one of the ideas now in deliberative democracy, as you mentioned, is a more analog part. We talk about a digital democracy, live streaming and things like that. But there's a equal analog counterpart that focus on the kind of people to people relationship resonating with people nonviolent communication on a more kind of almost physical sense and so on. So I think that part is equally important. Community mm-hmm. organization and things like that is equally important. And I think it's just a kind of coincidence that I, I was a pretty good, if I may so, say so myself, mm-hmm. programmer, and I in, encountered a free software movement and open source movement that gives rise to this kind of collaboration at scale thing. But before I was part of the internet, so to speak, when I was 12, I actually participated when I was eight or nine, a lot in the local cooperative movements, consumer co-op in particular, but also many other community organizations on the face-to-face scale. So if I've not encountered the internet, I will probably be spending more time on democracy as a social technology on a face-to-face setting. So yeah, maybe I'll dedicate more of my time there if I have not encountered internet so early. Yeah. Is there any other you know area of emerging technology that you think of yourself as more excited about than, than other people are? Well, I'm pretty excited in democracy as a social technology. I don't think many people see democracy as a set of technologies yet, mm-hmm. but I think that's a very useful view because when you analyze democracy in the terms of social technology, of bandwidth, of latency, of things like that, then new modes of thought become more natural, right? If you think of democracies mostly just jury and voting in ballots of presidents and so on, then, of course, you worry about uh, non-representativeness, non-statistical balancedness and things like that. But if you analyze it in terms of a high-dimensional, high-bandwidth collective sense-making apparatus that it is, then a lot more solutions and innovations would become possible to experiment at least before, of course, ratifying it as norms or laws. Yeah. This is slightly random, but how do you feel about parliamentary democracy as compared to kind of the presidential, like the sort of thing you see in the UK, as compared to the presidential republic style of government that you see in the US? Well, Taiwan is quite unique here because Mm -hmm. I'm a double appointee. The people, general election, elects the president who appoints the premier. Our premier, Su Zhenchang, is now exactly three years in the premier position. So a very stable premier and cabinet. And then the premier appoints us as ministers. And so it's 
basically, I'm a kind of a large minister, minister with a portfolio. We've got nine seats that work in an interagency fashion. And I think a supermajority of us are nonpartisan. Actually, mm -hmm. in the whole cabinet, including other ministers, there's more independent nonpartisan people than people of any party. And that's only possible if you have this kind of double appointee system. If you have a parliamentary system, by necessity, we're all MPs answering right. to our parties and constituents and so on. But the Taiwanese system has this distinct benefit that the cabinet takes care of the initial, you know, discovery of interests and defining of common values. And then the party politics enters in the parliament, which is a different branch. And that has your more usual party politics going on. So we're in a remarkably nonpartisan setting in which that digital democracy project like this is, as I mentioned, widely agreed by all four parties in the parliament. So as a kind of lab for digital democracy, I think this setting, this nonpartisan, transpartisan setting, I think is more conducted but I can't speak on behalf of other parliamentary system designs. Yeah, yeah. Is there any emerging area of technology, I guess either you know, science and tech or, or social technology, that you're maybe more worried about and like nervous about mm -hmm. the implications that it could have than, than other people are? Not particularly. I happen to be quite optimistic uh, in the capacity <laughs> of democracy yeah, to, to overcome emerging issues, whether it's over-centralization of data um, by way of authoritarian intelligence or AI, or whether it's kind of the imbalance of power because of mm. the centralization of computing resources and so on, or disinformation because of over-incentivizing, you know, shallow engagements and outrage and so on. I mean, these are issues, of course, but we, we've seen this before. We've seen the initial spam issues around the turn of centuries and so on. Uh, and I, I tend to believe in internet governance and the liberal democratic order that can actually surface the innovations as rapidly as the threats to the liberal democratic order. Yeah. To what extent do you think that, you know, advances in artificial intelligence that may well come over the next hundred years are a threat to the liberal democratic order? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I mentioned, if it evolves to the direction of authoritarian intelligence, in which the data collection is not consensual, in which the application of data, including its bias, has no way to appeal or at least compare badly to the judicial way of getting appeals done and so on, then of course it's quite worrying. But the fact that we're talking about this means that people already worry about it sufficiently, mm -hmm. <laughs> that people are working on tackling this very problem to make what I call assistive intelligence or augmented collective intelligence the predominant norm, at least in the democratic countries like the GPAI focusing the AI research on that particular value system. And so just like the invention of fire, of course, I may worry that fire will destroy entire cities. But if sufficient amount of fire wielders are worried about the same thing, then we teach young people to use fire responsibly via cooking classes and sharing open recipes as early as maybe kindergarten. And then we design our building materials with fireproof materials. Yeah. Speaking of which, I guess two years ago, you sounded really excited about brain-computer interfaces, like the, the kinds mm -hmm. of things that you know, Neuralink is, is trying to develop. I still yeah. am. You mm -hmm. still feel that way? Yeah. Uh, why, is, why is that? To tell us about why, why it will hopefully be useful. Yeah. And uh, I don't mean Neuralink specifically. I mean things that build empathy in a more kind of non-psychological projecting, but actually intersubjective way. Mm. And the reason why is that for people who feel very differently, Mostly 
that's because it's very difficult to put oneself in another's shoes if we don't share a significant lifting experience around the topic that we discuss. And so the fundamental limit of police-like technology is the shared experiences uh, that people have when they look at the same concrete statement. Mm. Now, immersive realities, especially interactive games in immersive realities, what I call shared reality, is a kind of natural solution, right? So basically, I arrange the immersive reality, my reality, digitalize it, inviting you into my reality, maybe very briefly, just a couple of minutes. And then that does more than pages and pages of words to convey the previously incommensurable values and things that I value to you, right? So if immersive reality can do this very quickly, then the question is how to model that immersive reality. Does everyone need to learn Blender or Unity or <laughs> things like that? Or, or whether some sort of just free association from the brain or from some artistic medium and so on can translate easily to the sort of reality shaping models. And that's why I'm excited. Yeah, interesting. I suppose I'm a little bit I'm a little bit skeptical about the brain computer interface and and I suppose mm-hmm. when I think about, you know, people having empathy and understanding one another, it seems like we already have a reasonably high bandwidth technology for developing mm-hmm. that, which is language, people talking to one another, and I guess as you're saying like also artistic expression of visual media like cinema say. And I wonder like what input, like what input can you stick it uh, you know, using electrodes directly connecting to the brain? rather than, you know, the eyes or the ears that would allow people to understand one another better than what we already have. Or maybe I'm misunderstanding the, the proposal. Yeah, no, you're, you're not misunderstanding the proposal. No, I'm not saying that it replaces any artistic medium or video conferencing medium or, or things like that. I'm more saying that it manages the the attention more effectively, hmm. like allowing the same set of nonverbal or micro expressions to survive internet transmission. Hmm. Because, I mean, if you have suffered uh, Zoom fatigue before, <laughs> you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's just very difficult to sustain your attention, even in together mode, uh, like in Skype or Teams, hmm. to more than, say, three persons over the two-dimensional screen yeah. uh, over, say, 20 minutes. Uh, it's just we're, we're not designed to do that. Yeah. But on the other hand, if instead of capturing all the micro expressions, which is rather difficult, we capture the, the intention and then just reapply that skin to the avatar or as many WaveNet-like uh, systems are now doing, like uh, you can convey using your verbal kind of tonality and things like that, such nonverbal expressions, even in a relatively low bandwidth microphone or, or earphone and things like that, then it, it adds kind of different nuance layer that we can actually stay focused and on topic, even though we're technically in different spaces. And maybe it's not about electrodes. It, maybe it's about kind of detecting your finger and muscles uh, on your arms and mm-hmm. things like that. But maybe uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that a higher uplink bandwidth of the nonverbal parts of our body uh, preserved and transmitted accurately to the counterparts across the screen. I think that aids the bandwidth of the nonverbal part of communication lest uh, only the kind of verbal, rational, edited part of our statements survive internet conversations. Yeah, what application of decentralized ledger technology, or I guess more often called blockchain technology, do you think will be of greatest value over the over the next decade, say? 
Mm, still Git. I mean, I believe Git is very important. And it is a distributed ledger, mostly publicly. You mean uh, GitHub, which stores just people? Yeah, people's sure. Code? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, because Git is a distributed ledger, right? It's yeah. just, it, it doesn't have this built-in financial incentive to make more commits. But fundamentally, Git and decentralized version control system in general makes it possible to even consider having a soft fork without decentralized version control systems back in the battle days of CVS. And, and so on. its fork is a politically aggressive movement because mm. all forks are hard forks. It's almost impossible to reconcile. And this whole philosophy of a you know coherent, eventually consistent ideas of a basically swarm-like structure. Mm. People just, you know, doing whatever they, they feel like, but almost magically their innovations can survive their individual projects and go back through the conflict-free replicated data mm. and so on. That is, I think, one of the most fundamental insights brought first to software engineering, but now through collaborative spreadsheets and documents and so on, mm. become kind of like the social norm. The Occupy movement in the Sunflower movement would not succeed without the collaborative note-taking software, for example. So I think that ledger over overlooked often, <laughs> but, but I think it's the kind of fundamental ledger of our times, the CRD based on uh, decentralized version control. Sounds like I've got to learn more about what Git is. Is there any technology or social norm or system that could be deployed in Taiwan that would help maintain its people's freedom, even if the island were to later be taken over by the People's Republic of China? Well, it depends on the kind of takeover, right? So it's a hypothetical question that has yeah. no, no good answers. I think the point I'm making is that the Taiwan model doesn't need to run only in Taiwan. Mm. And indeed, the individual pieces, police came from Seattle, the you know pro and con petition from Better de Cavic, participatory budgeting from Madrid uh, and Barcelona, and, and so on. So basically, we're, we're kind of just one tentacle uh, in this digital democracy tribe, so to speak, to advance pluralism in the digital era. And I see myself and as reflected by my background, basically kind of a projection from the kind of digital native tribe to the governance system of Taiwan. But there's many other parallel experiments going on. And I, I think already these experiments, thanks to podcasts such as this one, travel to, to all sorts of places in this planet and it will probably survive uh, no matter what happens to Taiwan. Yeah. Is there any technology or just anything that you wish had been different about Hong Kong that would put it in a better position mm-hmm. now, now that the Communist Party is taking more control? Well, as I mentioned, I think the insights that Hong Kong people created, co-created during the first Umbrella and then later on the anti-e-lab and so on movements already impacted not just the Taiwanese activists, but people around the world. Actually, the cities that I mentioned, many of the activists there specifically say that they learned this from LIHKG or they they learned that from anti-e-lab and things Mm. like that. So I think when viewed from the kind of very high level view of co-creation of new norms and new innovations, the legacy is already there. We're already talking about you know, leaderlessness, talking about be water, talking about this in a way that people simply can't ignore that there's a proof of existence, a demonstration that actually worked to realize those principles. Yeah. I guess, yeah, over the last year or two, I've heard 
kind of more active fears that China might be going to invade Taiwan or try to take over Taiwan relatively soon. If it does that, yeah, how do you think you might personally respond? Again, depends on how exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know... I suppose initially you might not know how it will play out. Mm-hmm. Right, because there, there's many, many different ways yeah. that it may play out. And as I mentioned, the Ministry of Defense never stationed any secondment to my office. Mm. So I know you have no like, in- inside absolutely info. nothing yeah. <laughs> about, about how exactly that may play out. But yeah. of course, we're now... Well, what we're now doing is essentially getting the message out that Taiwan can help, mm. not just to you know improve agricultural products or on the public health, which are actually something we did make mm. a lot of it, contributions to the international community, but now also on digital democracy and on many things around the digital issues that we have. I wouldn't say best, but somewhat better practices that we're happy to share with other people. And I think uh, this is also part of the safeguards because then people care more when Taiwan faces a more adverse situation. Yeah. I guess you personally describe yourself as a sort of anarchist, I guess uh, a conservative anarchist, you say. Conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah conservative anarchist. Yeah. Yes. I guess, yeah. Given that, would you probably rather emigrate than live under control of the Chinese Communist Party or like even partial control of the Chinese Communist Party? Because I think it's fair to say that they are not uh, anarchist, conservative or otherwise. Huh. Well, I mean, this depends. Again, this Mm -hmm. depends on exactly how the the hypothetical situation plays out. So I can't really, really answer that concretely because it's so hypothetical a question. But I want to clarify, lest people think I'm bomb-throwing. Uh, <laughs> I want to clarify on the, on the anarchist thing. The basic idea of conservative anarchism, as I put it, is it doesn't destroy any existing institutions. Mm. It's a fundamental respect to the traditions in Taiwan, 20 national languages, many indigenous and other traditions. So honoring those traditions, not trying to kind of disruptively innovate to put them out of business. But then it's small c conservative. So it means that I ask myself to honor the traditions, but I don't prohibit you from mm-hmm. challenge the traditions. So in in a sense, it's the internet postels law, right? Be conservative in what you do, but liberal in what other people do. And that's the, the conservative part. And so the anarchism then seen in this frame means simply that I don't coerce you to do mm-hmm. things. And I do not accept coercion as a way for me to do things. It's always by voluntary association. So Mm. if everything is voluntary association, then basically it means that what we need to worry about mostly is the insufficient information and so on, which goes back to the well-informed citizens and public and things like that. So it's not about destroying institutions by bomb-throwing in a other anarchistic Mm. zero type, but rather to work with not for, existing institutions, including the state, and then work out a way to kind of voluntarily make the coercive power of the state lessen and fundamentally obsolete. So mm. it's very Buckminster Fullerian. Right? <laughs> so work on new systems that make the old one uh, eventually obsolete without even disrupting or changing the old institutions. Yeah, because how is your style of conservative anarchism different from a kind of moderate libertarianism? Because I guess libertarianism would be a more familiar term in the US anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what it means, the difference is that when you hear libertarianism, usually it puts the first and foremost, the subject of the individual. Hmm. But when I say conservative with small c, 
I put the first and foremost important thing as the social groups. So, for example, in Polis, it's the cluster that have votes, not the individual mm. that has votes. But the individual, when they differ from one another sufficiently, they form their own cluster. So we're not putting a cap on the kind of social groups that may exist. But once the social group exists, it takes a foremost precedence on setting their own rules or their own norms and things like that as peers to other institutions or other groups. So, so this group-oriented intersectionality, I think, isn't what usually people associate with the term libertarianism. Or maybe I'm wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think like libertarian political philosophers uh, would yeah, strongly sympathize with what you're saying. So I guess if I understand it right, there's something like the individualist liberal anarchist part is that you get to voluntarily associate with the groups that you want to be a part of. So you're not forced mm-hmm. to participate in a community that you don't want to participate in. But then having done so, then there will be like social norms, <laughs> there will be like constraints potentially on your action or expectations that, that you may or may not agree with. Mm-hmm. And your choice, if you don't like that, is to go and join a different community, a different group. To, to fork. To, to fork, fork, basically. To yeah, yeah. I think, well, yeah, I, I don't know what individual libertarians think, but I think like people who've thought about this more deeply think that this is kind of the mm-hmm. vision that seems more viable. I mean, there might still be problems, but... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think, yeah, of course, to fork a corporation, for example, is just to start a startup. Yeah, right. right. So, I mean, there, <laughs> there are equivalents in the, in the, in the more, you know, uh, startup-oriented libertarian thoughts. But truth to be told, people don't usually think starting a new co-op or credit union or a advocacy group and so on as starting a startup. Mm. So, so there is still a very different tones of a more purpose-led or a more profit-led mm. interpretation of the term of forking your social group. And I'm specifically referring to the existing purpose-oriented, like organized institutions yeah. as the kind of baseline, the main line. And I don't think that's what the corporate libertarianism is focusing upon. They're mostly focusing upon, you know, corporation as kind of uh, initially legal fiction, but more and more reality and things like that, which I, I sympathize with and, of course, has a role uh, to play within the whole plurality of things. But as you can see, mostly the taxi unions and so on, they have at least as much a say as Uber, the company, mm. uh, in the police design. Yeah. I guess anarchists and libertarians both have a lot of reluctance to force people to do things, especially, you know, using violence mm-hmm. to, like, force people to behave one way or another. I guess, what, what's the limiting principle for you? Like, under what circumstances is it acceptable to coerce someone into doing something? I don't know. I guess, so in, in the case where it's like people can move community completely, like, an immediate objection that some people would have would be, say, that what if all of the billionaires went and formed their own community and they set a minimal tax rate, you know, 1%, 0%, because they didn't need... I'm sure people yeah. did that in Second Life. I'm <laughs> okay. sure people did that in Second Life. Right. <laughs> but, but if they did it in the real world, then we could no longer mm-hmm. use taxation as much to help poor people, say. Uh, that would be like a very common objection that you might get from many people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. definitely. And of course, given the, the resource constraints... For example, when there's no sufficient amount of mask production, mm. I also helped in visualizing the fair distribution of rationed masks. Yeah. Uh, and rationing is a sort of coercion because you, you can't really, you know, by your freedom, uh, hoard all the mask to sell it to people for, for profit. But on the other hand, we also, instead of insisting on rationing masks, 
actually produced masks initially, you know, less than 2 million a day in a country of 23 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we quickly ramp up the medical grade mask production to more than 20 million a day, in in which case the rationing is still there to protect the the people who are less well-informed or less economically affordable. But then there's a parallel uh, fashion industry of people wearing pink masks and Mm -hmm. rainbow masks and things that express themselves and so on. So basically what I'm trying to say is that, of course, when the resource is scarce, some sort of coercion apply in a fast, self-corrective and fair fashion is probably inevitable. But this must not blind us to the possibility, indeed, the innovation that would then enable abundance yeah. and then the sort of soft forking possible that, of course, by last year, we've stopped mask rationing altogether in the convenience stores because people can freely buy masks in convenience stores. Yeah. 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 And listening to some of your previous interviews, you were saying that part of your like conservative or conservationist instinct, an example of it is that you would like to see Taiwan's numerous smaller indigenous languages preserved and ensure that people can continue to speak them, even though mm-hmm. I guess Mandarin mm-hmm. is probably quite, quite dominant. I guess a hypothetical way that things could go that highlights the tension between the anarchism and the conservatism is that what if a whole lot of people in these smaller groups decide that they would rather speak Mandarin because it's more economically beneficial, mm-hmm. it's more practical to speak a language to, and to write in a language that lots of, like many, many more people can, can understand. And so just through voluntary choice, voluntary association, these languages gradually become less useful to speak and then more people peel off and stop speaking them and then gradually they disappear except in kind of books by linguists. Yeah. Would you want to do anything about that? Or is that just acceptable? But it's not just the outflow, right? There's also the inbound. Hmm. Like people who are interested in the history, in the art, in the culture, and so on, who may not be born in the indigenous nation, but nevertheless, because of advanced in machine learning and Duolingo-like technologies, makes it really, really easy for you to to then speak that language uh, with minimal face-to-face commitment required. And so what, what I'm trying to say is that we're not preventing anyone to move anywhere or to learn a new language and so on. But on the other hand, a sufficient investment could also be made to make the inbound flow easier. So not brain drain, but talent circulation, so to speak, and so on. And the more you learn new languages, the easier it is to learn even newer languages. And so at the end of the day, the kind of coaches one can interface with uh, is not a zero-sum game. It's not like we have an allocated quota of language one can learn in a lifetime. Actually, with assistive intelligence, mm. there's probably unbounded. Uh, and so again, this is, is a, you know, starts a scarcity oriented question on the mask rationing era, but with mm. sufficient innovation, it could be quite positive some. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in the world in which we live at the moment, it's, it seems like there's far more people flowing out of these smaller indigenous languages than, than are flowing into mm-hmm. them. So on, on net, like sure. there's a lot of language disappearance. And I get like one reason is that those languages tend to be actually just be objectively a lot more difficult to learn than Mandarin or English, which have had like a lot of the details stripped away because mm-hmm. they've been learned by so many people as, as adults over, over the centuries, uh, which is less common with indigenous languages. But I guess so. So that's kind of the what is it now? I guess you're, you're potentially right that if we had extremely good translation AI systems that can translate, you know, between all of these different smaller languages, as well as we can translate between Spanish and English today, which is really quite a high standard or, or better then maybe that would be enough to allow them to continue to to operate <laughs> if people are willing to use the translation. Yeah, there's a branch called transfer learning that yeah. does exactly that, right? So 
for, uh, I think the technical term is low resource languages, as long as you can trace its nearest kind of kin of mm. slightly higher resource languages and do that even recursively. I see. Uh, then actually none of those machine learning efforts put into, say, English or Mandarin is actually at a hindrance because through sufficient amount of bridges, you can actually then, I, I believe it's now off the shelf technology to apply your vocal acoustic model and then speak all those they're very different languages sounds like you're speaking them. And then you can also have parallel corpus built across different low resource languages quite efficiently through cross-source lexicography. That was my work in Oxford University Dictionary. We helped to build such cross-sourcing resources, frameworks, and so on. So, I mean, it all depends on the kind of research funding and uh, venture capital funding and all sort of crowdfunding, whether people think that direction is fruitful. And if they are, I'm quite optimistic that eventually the low resource languages would also benefit from the general machine learning assistive intelligence paradigms. Yeah. You seem to have accomplished a lot over the last decade. And I, I get the sense that maybe the way that you work on a day-to-day -day basis or month-to-month -month basis is a little bit different than, than other people. So I'm curious to, to learn more about it. I guess, yeah, first off, what's a project you've contributed to in government that you're proud of other than the COVID-19 related ones? Yeah, well, definitely is the uh, humor over rumor efforts to combat the disinformation crisis without ever getting to the kind of administrative takedown stuff, right? Mm. Because in many different jurisdictions, we're seeing responses to the disinformation crisis aiming at the platforms. Mm. Uh, while, of course, they behave, uh, I'm sure, with the people's interest in mind, they tend to kind of just concentrate the platform powers from the, you know, multinational corporations uh, to the state, essentially especially within the administration, and that creates its own power centralization problems. So uh, the Taiwan model, on the other hand, basically empowered the social sector, a diverse plurality of fact-checkers, of people teaching middle schools, uh, fact-checking the three presidential candidates, people who go to the tallying booths after a presidential election to kind of live stream the tallying from various different angles and so on. So basically, it's a very coherent social sector-first approach that allowed people to to basically participate in collaborative fact-checking and sense-making and so on, which I believe is actually a more long-termism, right, informed way of looking at a infodemic situation without over-centralizing power to any of the state organs. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like the approach with the humor of a rumor, just for listeners, is rather than kind of try to get Facebook to change its policies in order to combat disinformation. Instead, you have a, a large team of volunteers who are constantly alerted to disinformation that is circulating mm -hmm. and ideally is, you know, newly circulating. And they kind of come up with memes that they think have, you know, viral power, often, I guess, using humor because people tend to mm -hmm. like to share funny things as a way of combating that. So it's using the energy of civil society in order to combat misinformation and inform people better in a way that I think... At least there isn't kind of a coordinated effort to do in the US or the UK. It's more like formal institutions and fact-checking and so mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like vaccines that go viral, for lack of a better term. Yeah. yeah. I guess talking about how you get things done. In a previous interview, you said that you don't do much of the actual kind of programming or, you know, implementation, you know, deployment of a project anymore. Instead, you just design the spaces for people who care about a topic to make things happen. Yeah. Can you elaborate on how you do that? Sure. So basically, the idea is very simple. 
there's multiple spaces for collaboration. For example, my own office, the Social Innovation Lab, is open for all the social innovators. And personally, every Wednesday, you can book 40 minutes of my time in the office hour to talk about whatever social innovation you're working on. And my only requirement is that it's radically transparent, meaning that the transcript and the recording, or at least one of which, is published in the Creative Commons. And so people, of course, lobby me, but they mm-hmm. actually just lobby the, the internet, right? The community, mm-hmm. because of radical transparency, people have to make pro-social arguments. It doesn't work for radical transparency if you argue for something that's bad for everyone else, right? It would look really bad. So basically, it's not me personally that helps you out, but I amplify the social innovators' ideas so much so that every year through another space called the Presidential Hackathon in the Social Innovation Lab, we use quadratic voting, both online and also face-to-face in a panel. We make sure that the best social innovations on a local scale, uh, five teams each year, receive this trophy from our president, Dr. Taiwan, which the trophy is shaped like Taiwan, but with a microprojector underneath. So if you turn the microprojector on, it projects the president giving you the trophy. It's very meta, <laughs> it describes itself. Uh, and uh, what it does is that it's a presidential promise that whatever you work on for the past half a year or so on a local scale will become public policy on a national scale with all the personnel budget and regulatory support that it needs within the next fiscal year, basically. So that's a way of amplifying things. So without actually personally working any of those presidential hackathon teams, I ensure that they get the support they need to scale. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like you're providing a few things. I suppose one is you're meeting with people and presumably giving them advice on the strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. of the things that they're thinking of working on. I guess you're also, as a as a minister in the government, talking with you maybe motivates people and provides them with a sense of legitimacy for the project that they're considering. And then I guess, so you're curating their ideas and then getting other people to basically vote on how good they think they are in some kind of decentralized way. And I guess... By broadcasting their ideas, they're also potentially attracting programmers or people who want to work on those projects specifically. And by publishing your conversations, they could figure out what they what they want to work on. And then I guess you also have the reward that potentially if things go well, their idea might then get scaled up to a much larger scale. So the prize in terms of social impact is larger than it would be if that were not available. Is that kind of the majority of, of what you're doing? Yeah, so there's two parts, I guess. One is, of course, making sure that idea was spreading, spread, right? <laughs> but in addition of just disseminating the innovations, a equally important part is to get the rough consensus, right? The broadly agreed upon norms mm-hmm. on what to do when, say, the infodemic or pandemic comes. And so this is what I refer to as listening at scale. So one part of my work is making sure that people can resonate with one another on online spaces such as join or post and so on. And then once people broadly agree on the common values, despite their initially different positions, then the innovation that implement those values, then I give them administrative support and amplify them. And these two are like the kind of double diamond in design thinking. They just keep iterating one after each other. Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, people must bring you tons of ideas and you would have to decide to work on just a tiny minority of those. No, no, no I just put it to vote. No, no, just right, quadratic yeah. voting. Interesting. <laughs> So basically, you allow the community to kind of decide how you're going to allocate your time to to some degree. Does that create any problems where people might vote for something that you don't personally feel that motivated by? 
Well, not at all. I mean, we have another space called join.gov.tw where 5,000 people may start a petition that always warrants a ministerial point-by-point response. And every month, the participation offices are teams in each ministry, around 100 people in total vote on two topics each month, so bi-weekly, uh, that we tackle on an interagency uh, way orchestrated by, by my office. Mm-hmm. So basically, even the curation itself is distributed across the 32 ministries. So when they decide, for example, they want to tackle this petition that wants to change Taiwan's time zone to plus nine, it's a real one, mm. uh, 8,000 people strong. And another <laughs> petition uh, that says we should remain in GMT plus eight, I defer to the 32 ministries and their participation offices in curating those topics worth exploring. And my personal taste doesn't enter the picture. Right, right. I guess, so if the community strongly upvotes some proposal, what's the way that you're most likely to be able to help it get implemented? Is it kind of coordinating with people in government in as much as that's necessary or providing kind of technical advice? It all depends on the, the nature of the ask, right? Mm. Most of the time, they just want it to be widely known. And that's the most easy thing. I just start a podcast, right? But <laughs> on the other hand, of course, sometimes like changing the time zone, it actually carries a real risk to other people who might actually oppose this idea, right? So then the point becomes uh, to actually do a cost-benefit analysis on an evidence-based uh, level. So, for example, we would get all the ministries actually calculating, shifting one hour in the time zone, what kind of transaction cost it costs for the stock exchange or even the energy use and things like that. And each ministry and agency actually calculate the cost to that. Mm. And the benefit, of course, arguably, is making Taiwan seen more unique in the world, but that is questionable. So that could also be quantified a little bit by getting people from different sides to come together to look for the kind of social return of investment of that proposal. And then um, people of different sides, right? As I mentioned, there's 16,000 people in two very different camps. So they actually come and meet face to face, some of them anyway. And then we look at the actual benefit it could cause. And we all agreed eventually that the same investment is much better if we just uh, make public the fact instead of time zone change by marriage equality, Taiwan being the first in Asia, human rights, open democracy, and things like that. So the value is the same, like trying to make Taiwan seen as more unique in the world. But uh, the way to implement it can actually innovate and beyond the original proposal. So that's my kind of purpose is just to provide a space in which that this rough consensus and then new innovations can reach people who initially may not resonate with each other, but eventually come together. Yeah. I imagine that a lot of people would have reservations about kind of delegating so much control over what they spend their time on and how things get implemented to, I guess, to an open community that that people can easily join. You know, all of us end up delegating a lot of decision-making power to other people inside, you know, organizations that we work in, people who've been hired. But are there any issues with handing over so much control of your life to a group where I imagine it's relative, the barriers to entry are relatively low or, may, or maybe there are kind of uh, in practice people say get more influence the more that they have contributed themselves. Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the idea is that I pre-commit certain hours of my time to such end of us 
But the bandwidth, of course, is limited, which is why every month we can actually only process two, not 2,000 petitions of interagency nature, and why the president can only bless <laughs> five, not 5,000 yeah. uh, presidential hackathon projects each year and so on. So while the bandwidth is fixed by necessity, we try to improve the, the latency, that is to say, to make sure that you can actually get a response here and now mm. in a more predictable way. Having to wait, you know, 24 hours is much better than having to wait for four years, right, to, to get your ideas across, right? So the point here is that we shorten the iteration, but it doesn't mean that I actually overcommit my time. I still only have that many hours in a day, and I only commit 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. to such mm. crowdsourced endeavors, uh, and only during weekdays. Yeah. Just so I can understand better how this community works, it sounds like there's one part of it which is citizens wanting to present ideas and concerns mm-hmm. to their government. Yep. And it sounds like there's a kind of another aspect of it, which is people who want to volunteer their time to like civically mm-hmm. minded projects, like potentially these are programmers or coders or, or developers. Are these two separate platforms or yeah, how do these things relate? Well, the thing is that the civic tech people doesn't really need a government-sponsored platform. They actually have, you know, GitLab, GitHub, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. on. So it's not like we have to build a domestic GitHub in order for me to send a pull request. GitHub is already there. The same goes for other GitHub-like spaces, right? So the point here is that only when intersecting with the decision-making process within the administration, do we need the public infrastructures sponsored by the state? But uh, in the more kind of civic tech, open source community, there's already what I call civic public infrastructures in the digital realm that's, that's already there, right? So those civic infrastructures will just be a good, I guess, citizen, internet citizen as participants. So I invite my colleagues in the administration and the ministries and so on uh, to send pull requests to be good internet citizens citizens in the civic infrastructures while, of course, building the public infrastructures in the digital realm funded by the public if we perceive that there's no existing civic infrastructure that fulfills such role, e-petition, participatory budgeting come to mind. Yeah, right. I guess to some extent, you're the representative in the government for this community or, or this platform. Do you have to do any kind of politicking in order to, you know, maintain support for it? Because people presumably come up, they have some criticisms, they might think sometimes it's a bad way to spend money or a bad way to to allocate people's time and, and focus. And you might have to persuade them that no, actually, this really is worth the government investing in. Well, I think the implicit outside game is that if we don't do that, the parliament will get occupied again, <laughs> right? So right. it's not me doing the convincing, right? So, so I, I think that the point here is that after a powerful public demonstration, people's norm and their expectation to the politicians change. At the end of 2014, all the mayoral candidates that didn't support the Occupy the Open Government principles simply didn't get elected. And the people who do, uh, do get elected, and some of them didn't even prepare the inauguration speech, right? So basically, the citizens in Taiwan have signaled very powerfully that anything that reduces the bandwidth of citizens' participation is a non-starter for politicians in the representative regime, right? So nowadays, all the four major parties in our parliament compete on how more democratic they can be, how more open and participatory they can be, and accuse each other, you know, for being slow and things like not (laughs) agile uh, in responding to the citizens, but nobody wants to go back 
uh, right. to the battle days of pre-open government uh, movement. And that's why I think they sign on the Open Parliament National Action Plan. And that's why it's one of the very few things that they can broadly agree on in the parliament. Yeah. But before 2014, was the Taiwanese government perhaps unusually closed or unusually backwards? And so to some extent, this has been a real swing of the pendulum in the opposite direction? I guess part of the reason why is that back in 2014, there's a real sense of kind of powerlessness, right? Uh, People have a lot of good internet connection. We already had kind of internet as a broadband before we had broadband as a broadband. So it's very easy for ideas, good ideas to spread in the civic infrastructures. Mm. But there was no systemic way for the public service to incorporate those. So it becomes such that, for example, back in 2012, there was a YouTube advertisement by the administration that says we're going to launch this economic power-up plan, but it's very hard to explain and nobody can figure it out anyway. Mm. And a YouTube advertisement shows people of many different works and you know styles and so on uh, looking at those budget numbers in puzzlement. And then finally a voice over says, so don't try to understand it, just, just do it. Of course, it, it feels like really, really bad uh, for the internet citizens who already actually shared many ways to understand the budgets among them all, but they're basically being treated like children. You don't have to understand why, just do as the parents tell you to. So so those <laughs> things were part of the communication stuff administration at then, and then the advertisement, I think, was flagged as spam and detected by the YouTube algorithms and taken off stage and so mm-hmm. on. So that actually promoted the founding of the G0V of the GovZero movement that showed the national budget in an easy-to-understand way, and people can actually upvote and downvote and offer comments just to kind of show the administration that it's actually totally unlike what the advertisement is trying to say. So I wouldn't say it's it's particularly backward, but I think what the civil society has been doing is uh, unusually active in Taiwan. There was a very strong social sector already, pretty tech-savvy and things like that. So the contrast seems much larger than in other jurisdictions. That is to say, while the government's distance with the people are probably the same compared to other liberal democratic jurisdictions, the people and people ties are much more close in 2012 in Taiwan. So it feels like the government is more distant. Yeah. So just to explain to the audience, the GOV, I guess it's like G, GOV zero. Gov zero. Gov zero. Gov zero, yeah. yeah. So basically, the, the idea here is to build kind of a shadow set of government websites and, and services. So you can imagine if people don't like the Department of Motor Vehicles, that you know, dmv.gov, someone registers dmv.gov. Uh, uh, G0V. G0V. And then builds kind of an alternative to the, to the DMV, just, I guess, themselves or, or with some friends. And the hope there would be that that would effectively provide a better service that then would just get wrapped into the normal government website once it's been demonstrated that the people prefer soft it. Fork, yeah. So, to speak. Yes. so soft fork. Uh-huh. I suppose this would be very hard, I would imagine, to do in the UK or the US because people wouldn't have access. Well, they could make, for example, you know, an FAQ website about the DMV on on, Mm -hmm. on that domain, but they wouldn't have access to the APIs. They wouldn't have access to the data. They wouldn't have access to the databases to actually offer any services. All they could do is just kind of have a wiki, for example. But it seems like in Taiwan, it's a lot easier to start providing actual useful services using, using effectively government IT. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. And the reason why is 
this embrace of open data and real-time open data or open API by the government services. So basically, if you don't like how the government website portray a certain set of data, for example, the real-time inventory of masks in pharmacies in early 2020, you can always tap the API, which updates every 30 seconds, and show your own visualization. And if you don't like maps, you can try a chatbot or virtual mm. reality voice assistance, whatever. And by decoupling the API part of the procurement and the user kind of interactive part of the procurement, it also makes sure that the front end, because it iterates so quickly and people have so many different diverse needs, it means that we don't need to wait for a new procurement contract. We can always say, okay, this startup specialized in chatbots. Let's just build a chatbot portal to vaccination location and things like that. Yeah. How far can you take this? Is this true across many or most Taiwanese government services, or is it kind of only a minority where that's feasible? Well, it's it's a majority, definitely. If you look at the uh, open data index among all the jurisdictions, I think Taiwan plays consistently on the top for quite a few years before they decide not to you know, publish that ranking anymore mm. because the, the top <laughs> few leaders already all have the, the main things covered, the basic mm. things covered. But I think anything that doesn't have privacy implications or trade secret implications or national security implications, if the government doesn't publish it as open data or API. It's now assumed as the government's shortcoming. And you mm. can go to data.gov.tw and make a request saying that, hey, this is only visible as information, not as data. What, mm. what gives? Let's uh, make a data pipeline out of this. And very quickly, we will make a data pipeline out of this. So this is now held as a norm that mm. anything that is FOIA requestable that doesn't have privacy and so on impacts must be used in a data first, API first way. Yeah. So just imagining a hypothetical example in the US or the UK, let's say that people didn't like the websites and, you know, the forms available with the Department of Motor Vehicles. So you're getting like Mm -hmm. licenses, booking appointments, I guess, for tests and things like that. I imagine if you started creating an alternative website that had its own forms that was feeding in, like bureaucrats would just get very nervous. They'd be like, this website is misinforming people. You know, I don't like what they've written on it. I don't don't like the data that they're collecting or I don't want them to have access Mm -hmm. to, to any of this stuff. There'd be all of these objections that people would raise, I imagine, plus just general anxiety that people would feel if they're not used to this system. Have you had to kind of overcome those barriers or sometimes do ideas, you know, for for open data or, you know, open design get shut down because of these worries? Well, I think the, the point is that we first focus on things of a broad public interest, mm. which is why GovZero is so important because GovZero always focus based on outrage, basically, uh, when people mm. feel that, for example, the national budget website and its associated advertisement uh, is mm. treating people's cognitive surplus very poorly, <laughs> uh, then, then there is a strong uh, motivation to build a better service, right? Mm. Uh, and the same goes for, for example, a national dictionary that doesn't allow for bookmarking and things like that. It was really bad. And then people forked uh, all the different dictionaries of all. We now have 20 national languages, so maybe four out of them get forked into an integrated website with English and French and German translations also, and so on. So it's called a MOE for Ministry of Education, the MOE Dictionary Project. I was the project leader before joining the government. So the point I'm making is that because there is a very strong kind of urgency to make that accessible for people who are using phones and want to teach their 
their children Mandarin or Hakka or Holok. So anything that the government offers that doesn't meet this need in a democratic society is definitely a governmental shortcoming. So that's why the civic tech people then show up as essentially superheroes, right? They, they're saving the public service from public blame. Uh, and, and so when, when that sort of situation happens, we actually see many of the collaborators are actually public servants themselves because they know that they will have to solve this one way or another. And they participate sometimes pseudonymously to the civic tech community to offer a way that makes the risk lower and also reduce their uh, overtime, I guess, uh, at work. But that, as you pointed out, relies on kind of general comfortable feeling of working with civic tech people as peers. And that's, I think, partly attributable to many of the civic tech people actually had some stint in the government, Mm. in digital services as fellows and so on. And conversely, many people in the National Board for Science and Technology or in the upcoming digital ministries and so on had plenty of entrepreneurship and social innovation experience in the civil society. So there's a kind of fluidity between the talent circulated across sectors here. Yeah. Can you think of any cases where you've had to give up on a project because it just wasn't going to work or maybe it was working or it was it was up, but it wasn't that harmful and so you decided to, to scrap it? But uh, I don't have... Uh projects, right? I have okay, right. spaces, right? <laughs> right yeah. so, so that was kind of a, a given. So uh, there are, of course, many petitions that didn't get 5,000 signatures, but of course, they are always free to, to try again, right? There's many presidential hackathon ideas, 200 each year that didn't get a quadratic voting uh, yeah. mandate, right? So, so there's plenty of these, but as long as they're open source in the creative commons and so on, their materials become the building blocks for the more successfully crowdsourced ideas and the people who participate in it can actually dynamically find a project that has the most synergy with them, uh, sometimes looking at the quadratic voting records, right? And then join those projects. So it's it's all very dynamic. It's like a swarm. So yeah, many have fledged projects, abandoned, gets upcycled <laughs> when the new emerging situation costs to reuse part of its infrastructures. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to figure out if there's some kind of limiting principle to how far GovZero can go. Like, are, mm-hmm. are there any cases where people tried to do a shadow government service or website and it actually turned out <laughs> to be harder than they thought and it was actually better just to close down? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as I mentioned already, national secrets, mm. right, privacy concerns, trade secrets, and mm. so on. Basically, because it's founded on open data and open source, if by law, there are certain data that just must not be made open, then of course, it's very difficult to fork that. Uh, mm. In my office, there's many ministries that send secondments to my office to work in a collaborative fashion. So we have a lot of ministries of interior, communication, education, justice, foreign affairs for public diplomacy, you name it. But the Ministry of Defense never sent anyone. So I think that says something Mm. about what sort of projects may not be that easily forkable. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like in Taiwan, there's a lot of citizens and volunteers and programmers who are kind of effectively contributing to provide these quasi-government services because they're really motivated to do so. Do you think Mm -hmm. if you took those people and instead you kind of hired them to be actual public servants and provide Mm -hmm. services like these as a a full-time job, do you think that would work better or or worse or, or just be different? Well, it depends on how long you hire them for, right? Uh, We have this internship program that lasts two or at most four 
month where people freshly graduated. Many are the in the first year of their graduate studies in service design or some other design-related field, and they really want the experience for a couple months to feel how public service design works. And they would look at one public service and do essentially something of zero like talk to the people who complain about the service and then redesign the service for the better. And so when, uh, but of course get pay to to do it full time. But then for them, this internship is important, but then they move on to do some more private sector jobs. If you try to keep them for two more years, four more years, I don't think many would take the offer. For for many, this is one part in the portfolio to build an understanding of public service design. So yeah, like what we used to say, everyone have two minutes of kindness. So if you cross us uh, this kind of participation uh, full time, but just for two minutes, I'm sure all of our citizens are willing to do. And if it's two months of internship, many are willing to do. Uh, two years, maybe a few. 20 years, maybe not. Yeah. With the Gov Zero projects, how does the internal politics work? So imagine, so you've got something like the the mask mapping project, say. Yeah. Uh, presumably, not just anyone, I can't just go on there and change the code. There's presumably some administrator and then other people might have to get approval in order to change the project or to join no, the project. No, no, no. Okay, yeah. No. Explain that. I mean, it's all open source, so just press fork, and okay. <laughs> you have your own version of the mask map. And and there's literally hundreds of mask maps. I, I, I build see. a directory of those actually, and so people who want to improve it in one part of values, for example, for people who are colorblind and so on, of mm. seeing difficulties and so on, they don't have to consult anyone. So mm. in a sense, everything is a soft fork of everything else. Yeah. Okay. So that's one way of handling disagreement. I imagine that, that there might end up being one map that more people use than others. That's kind of the default one or not, not really? No, no, not really. I, I can easily think of like four dominant ones, each serving a different need and it doesn't really converge. I see. So is that is that typical, basically, that things just get constantly mm-hmm. forked when people want to change them rather than necessarily having to kind of have some political process that decides what is in the official or the like most popular version? Yeah, I think the point here is rough consensus and running code. So, of course, there's some broad agreement that wearing a mask is good, right? Mm. So if, if people are anti-mask, I don't think they're going to work on a mask map. So yeah. there needs to be a general understanding uh, early 2020 that we want three quarters of population getting access to masks and wearing them full time as quickly as possible in order to lower the R value of the original strain uh, to be below one. And that is generally understood among everyone working on mask-related projects. But the, exactly the specifics, there's no fine agreement between all the hundreds or so teams working on those things. But the value itself is coherent enough so that one improvement, for example, uh, not misclassifying pharmacy with just a few masks left as having plenty of masks. That norm propagates across all those different map implementations fairly quickly because otherwise it caused the pharmacies to handle exceptions in a very difficult position, basically. So some mask map implementers offer this form uh, for pharmacy feedback and so on. And that was also kind of in a coherent, blended volition way, mm-hmm. uh, understood by the mask map implementer as to not cause the kind of pharmacist uh, burn out when we introduce uh, new functions. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we've gone we've gone well over the 90 minutes that, that you originally agreed to speak with us. You've been, sure. you've been super generous, but uh, yeah, we should wrap up. Let me get back to your work. I guess one final question I have is um, I heard on one of your previous podcasts that you're a vegetarian except for eating oysters and I suppose potentially uh, mussels as well. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I try to be. I, I mean, I'm not very strict about it. If it's already prepared, mm-hmm. uh, if it's delicious enough, and then maybe, yeah. So, so uh, but uh, when I have a choice, when I you know do do the order of the food, and so mm-hmm. more often than not, yeah, I'm a oyster vegetarian. And uh, the reasoning was that I, I want to contribute into minimizing the suffering. I guess. Mm. Okay, so, and I guess the reason to eat oysters but not other meat is that oysters probably aren't conscious or if they are, very minimally so? Yeah, I mean, the kind of minimal self patterns that would enable consciousness have not yet been uncovered in the oyster neuron systems. But if there are new evidences, uh, let me know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm largely vegan, but I also eat eat mussels. I guess I haven't, I haven't really thought that much about oysters because I don't because I don't super like them. But uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a kindred spirit in this. And uh, it seems like yeah, uh, I, I, I eat mussels too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It <laughs> seems like I mean they're also also really healthy. But it seems it seems like the the complexity of kind of the signaling system within mussels isn't that much more complicated than what you get in plants. Yeah, so there's kind of a, a slight somewhat equivalence argument that if you're willing to eat plants, then, then maybe eating mussels isn't 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 so much worse than that. And I really hope I'm. Really hope I'm right about that because I wouldn't want to be contributing to to the suffering of muscles if they if they are conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm okay eating synthetic meat, culture cells, and things like that again yeah. because they're probably not suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. We'll have a have a technical solution to all of these moral moral quandaries soon. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I super appreciate all of the work that you're doing, and I'm um, I'm really excited to learn more about some of these experiments in yeah a coordination between mm-hmm. people and aggregating preferences and, and learning and, and beliefs and so on. I've got a lot to learn about coming out of this interview. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, really, really good questions. Very well prepared. Oh, thanks so uh, much. I aspire to become a, a as good a podcaster <laughs> as you are. Yeah, I look, I look forward to hearing the show. We'll let our listeners know uh, know when it launches. My guest today has been uh, Audrey Tang. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Audrey. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Live long and prosper. If you'd like to hear more from Audrey, I can recommend her interview on the podcast Conversations with Tyler from back in October 2020. That's actually the interview that inspired me to invite her on the show. And there's a link to that in the blog post associated with the episode. Just a reminder that we're looking to hire advisors to counsel people one-on-one about how to have more impact with their work and also a new job board lead to take the job board to the next level. Applications close on the 20th and 27th of February, respectively. So go learn more about those roles soon at 80,000hours.org slash latest. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.